0: today on two sea vans
1: and so we beached the boat we couldn't really run the engine anymore Um, and we had phones uh, but we didn't have shoes (laughs) so we didn't really wear shoes a lot out there and so we were on the beach and looking up at this big red sandstone cliff covered in briars and and, uh, venomous things and so we climbed up the
2: Hello and welcome to Two Sea Fans at Moat Marine Laboratory. I'm Haley Rutger.
0: And I'm Joe Nicholson.
2: And this is your podcast for marine science, conservation, and education here at Moat in Sarasota, Florida. And we have a wonderful guest today who uh, is a rarity for us because he's from our Florida Keys campus. Uh, can you tell us your name and title, please?
1: Yeah. My name is Rob Nowicki. I'm a postdoctoral research fellow here at Moat.
2: Awesome. So how did you end up here at Moat?
0: He swam. Yep.
2: Yeah.
1: I yeah. swam all the here, way all
0: from the way QS up. to here. Yep. yep, It was
1: a long swim. <laughs> I think it was, I it think was me, Michael really... Phelps, in a white shark <laughs> racing. <Yes. laughs> I lost.
2: <laughs> That's how most of our scientists But I get. think she,
0: what she really meant was like, how did you end up at Moat in general? Like, where do you come from, Robert?
1: Uh, so I'm from, uh, Western North Carolina, very far from the ocean. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just really got lucky when I was a kid, uh, I went to a school where the uh, seventh grade science teacher was really obsessed with coral reefs, and he had actually developed uh, an entire year's curriculum around coral reefs that that concluded with taking the seventh grade class down to Florida Keys for like four days uh, to learn about fish and stuff, and you know, that was everybody's first exposure to any of those sorts of ecosystems, and most of the kids, honestly, didn't really care that much, but it really stuck with me, and I kind of realized that I'd always liked science, and that was first time I'd ever seen that sort of uh, opportunity before, and it stuck with me. And so I just kind of kept going through high school and went to a uh, local school in North Carolina for marine biology. And then um, hit a wall. And, uh, Ow. Yeah, yeah, it hurt. I learned my lesson, though. <laughs> um, I got out of undergrad and didn't know what I wanted to do. I had no idea how grad school worked. Um, I I, had, I'm
2: sure no one feels that way. Yeah,
1: <laughs> I, I felt completely... Uh, kind of uh, lost uh, took a year off uh, worked as a as a technician in a lab mm-hmm. and went back to school in Miami and uh, after that linked up with moat and uh, they liked me and I liked them enough and here I am
2: now is it just because you couldn't figure out what to study because you study many things i gotta say you have a broad yeah and a,
0: you're not a singular kind
2: an of exciting kind of level of complexity that you look at
1: yeah i've <laughs> i've got um academic add i say i'm like a dog, <laughs> dog chasing cars when it comes to research topics
2: yeah nice so like how did you how did you get into all this ecology and conservation stuff just because you see something you like it you pursue it um what got you into ecology?
1: Yeah, so in uh, undergrad, ecology was not on my radar really that much. Um, I graduated and I I made a list of all the different fields of biology that I might be interested in going forward, and ecology was like eighth on the list or something. Yeah. Oh wow! Um, and but I but I got this uh, job kind of out of uh, just really lucky circumstances um, in an ecology lab, and I saw how applied ecology is actually done and how people solve these real problems that actually affect people and ecosystems. And I got hooked. Um, and I decided I want to, ke- I wanted to keep doing marine ecology. Um, the kind of marine ecology I do is called community ecology. So I focus on more than one organism, mm-hmm. but I don't focus on everything in an entire ecosystem. So I don't focus on like uh, the primary production or the nutrient cycling stuff. I focus only on the living parts of it, um, and how all those animals interact with one another. So that That's kind of what lets me answer a bunch of different questions because you can't just focus on one narrow thing. You have to have that whole big picture.
2: Yeah, you gotta have a framework. So maybe you look at like predators and their prey or something like that.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, so predators and prey or competitors um, Mm -hmm. or even how uh, different organisms that you wouldn't normally think would interact can have interactions that, that have some surprising implications for ecosystems.
0: I can't help but wonder if that would give you any insights into how human beings interact with each other.
1: Well, there's a lot of analogs between, especially when you get into animal behavior. Um, You know, we, we tend to treat animals as boxes that go and do things. And it's in the past maybe decade or so that we've really taken a step back and started to think about more individual level things. Thinking about animals as individuals, personalities, just like we do with people. Um, and it turns out that that helps us a lot with understanding how ecosystems work.
2: That's a, it, that sounds so challenging to to have to study a large-scale process among lots of animals and then to treat them as individuals. <laughs> That's hard.
1: Yeah, it's, it's really fun and at the same time really frustrating um, because you're trying to do something that that's really difficult to do. Uh, when you do it on land, it's hard enough because you have to deal with all the complexity in the biology. When You do it on the water, you also have to deal with weather and boats and limitations with diving and all the other things. So um, yeah, it's a challenge, but it, it keeps getting you up in the morning because it's a, it's a fun challenge. Sweet.
2: You've gone to so many cool places already in your, I would say, young but exciting career already. Um, So can you tell us some of the places you've gone, some of the types of animals you've studied, just to give people a sense of all that?
1: Yeah. So I started uh, with my Ph.D. I did my Ph.D. at Florida International University uh, in Miami. Um, But my field work was on the other side of the planet from Miami um, in a place in Western Australia called Shark Bay.
0: Oh, I've heard of this bay. Have you been there? I have not.
1: You should go. It's a beautiful, beautiful spot. It's, People
0: are always telling me to go places. I wonder if it's just me. You're
1: that needs to go places, enough, man.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you <just> got some <laughs> vacation time banked up. It only takes three days to get out there. <laughs> only.
2: Ti- okay. Do you take a tiny plane and land in an area with not much of anything? Yeah.
1: So <laughs> if, whenever I went over there um, from Miami, I would fly from Miami to L.A., L.A. to Sydney, Sydney to Perth. And then a 12-hour bus ride from Perth up to Shark Bay. Oh, Oh, no. And that would drop you off at a gas station called the Overlander Roadhouse. (laughs) Okay. And Western Australia is so empty. It's the the size of the U.S., east of the Mississippi, but it only has 2 million people in it. Whoa. whoa. And of those 2 million, 1.8 million live in Perth. So (laughs) imagine taking, like... Charlotte, North Carolina, and then wiping every other town off the map and then driving around in that. And that's how empty it is. So this gas station, even though that's literally all it is, is on national maps of Australia. Oh, wow. Um, and so they drop you off the gas station and then you have to find someone to, dr- to pick you up at the gas station, drive you the extra hour and a half to actually get into Shark Bay. So it's it's kind of remote. Um, Joe, you once, should go. Well, yeah. <laughs> you should definitely <laughs> go. Haley just wants to get rid of me. <laughs> no. But, um, you'd mess up the what? census, though, because you'd add somebody. To <laughs> uh, There'd another, be another person <laughs>
0: there. Yeah. There's got to be something there, like some kind of facility there, though, right?
1: Uh, well, once there, you get
0: there, or are you camping?
1: Well, we're not camping, um, but we're coming pretty close. So uh, there's a little town up there called Denham, uh, which has about 500 people. Mm-hmm. And then there is a. Uh, a resort. It's it's more. We would call it more of a campground uh, for trailers and and campers and stuff. Um, but the reason it exists at all is because uh, there are wild dolphins that come inshore to feed, um, and people have been feeding them for 50 years. Um, the state has come in and regulated that so that the dolphins' health. Remains okay, but a hundred thousand people a year come up to Shark Bay to either fish or go see those dolphins. So we have uh, these little caravans that are about fifty years old. Uh, you look down, you can see the sand. You look up, you can see the stars. So nice. it's not camping, yeah. but it's pretty close.
0: Yeah.
2: Well, Joe, you're a camper. You, you maybe I you don't mind like camping. Maybe yeah. I should go to uh, Shark yeah. Bay. <laughs> um, so I, you've told me before, Rob, that this place is Shark Bay is so a UNESCO World Heritage site. So this is a, an ecologically important, maybe culturally important place. So studying it, kind of a, a really cool thing to do. And what were you? What did you look at there?
1: So, uh, Shark Bay is really speci- special because not only is it a UNESCO World Heritage Site, but it actually meets all four criteria for World Heritage, which a lot of the heritage sites don't. Um, it's also the world's largest seagrass ecosystem. Wow. Um, so, I went over there mostly to study predator-prey interactions focused on tiger sharks, um, but I was over there five times, and every time I felt like I went down one of the links in the food chain. And by the end of it, it was the seagrass that really interested me. <laughs> um, but the, uh, the area out there is special because not only is it this huge uh, seagrass ecosystem, but it's relatively pristine. There's almost no people out there. There's very little fishing. There's no permanent rivers. So you don't have the nutrient problems you do in a lot of coastal areas. Mm. Um, and so it's a, it's a really good place for us to study how ecosystem dynamics are supposed to work. Mm. When you still have predators, when you still have herbivores, when you don't have all those local stressors that people bring with them when they inhabit an area. And that's really why uh, the lab started working in that spot back in the 90s. Um, The year that I joined the lab uh, at FIU, a marine heat wave went through Shark Bay and killed uh, really huge, like hundreds of square kilometers uh, of seagrass. And so my PhD became a PhD about disturbance and about loss um, and figuring out, okay, well, what happens when you lose the base of an ecosystem? what happens to all those species interactions and can the species interactions help bring the system back
2: yeah you you went to a place to study how an ecosystem is supposed to work undisturbed and yet something came along and
0: disturbed it yeah. yeah yeah yeah
1: although it's you know it's kind of different than if you have say a dredging project or oh, yeah. um, you know some big development issue because this was a it was a climactic disturbance. These sorts of things are predicted to become more frequent and intense with climate change. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it gave us a really good insight about, you know, how does this affect ecosystems when you don't have those local anthropogenic stressors? Because most of the time, you know, we still get hurricanes, we still get heat waves, these things happen around the world, but a lot of times you have this overlay of human stressors on the system. And so it it still became a valuable uh, lesson for you know how does a natural system respond to these sorts of things, yeah. and that that work is ongoing. I mean, this is a story that's going to take a long time to to completely unfold. Now, yeah. does
0: that area, the Shark Bay, the the what's that the be the north uh, eastern?
1: It's the northwestern part. Northwestern part of, yeah. of
0: Australia. Does it experience typhoons?
1: Yeah, so they will get cyclones. Um, we were lucky not to have any hit us directly while we were there. Um, but, yeah, they'll get cyclones every now and again. Uh, it's kind of similar to, say, uh, the Southern Mid-Atlantic in terms of how frequently they hit and stuff. Uh, the, no- the Northern Territory is much more susceptible to, to major storms.
2: That makes sense. And you were telling us um, earlier in your your um, starting at Mo, you were telling us about part of the, the story of what happened there. You even published a paper on the seagrasses. Um, that they, they didn't recover all that well, at least in the time period that was studied, which was sad and kind of telling.
1: Yeah, so that work is is ongoing. Uh, I did publish a paper on recovery trajectories. So we have uh, 12 species of seagrass in Shark Bay. It's uh, among the most diverse seagrass ecosystems yeah. on earth. Um, but 85% of the cover is a single species that we only have in Australia. It's called Amphibolis Antarctica and it's Basically, a jungle. Um, if people uh, near Florida or even uh, the east or west coast of the United States, uh, you have seagrass in your coastal environments and it's uh, usually a strap shaped leaf. Yeah, turtle grass Yeah, turtle grass, Thalassia tunum down here uh, yeah. in the tropics. You go further north and you get Zostra, yes. um, which looks pretty similar. But you're really going to be hard pressed to find a blade that's longer than maybe a foot. Yeah. Um, in this area, in, Amphibolus can get uh, more than six feet long. Wow. Aww. So it's more like a kelp. Almost like a kelp, yeah. And the the beds that it creates are 100% cover and just this giant thicket. It's almost like trying to go through thick underbrush in a forest. Wow. Yeah. So all the habitat that creates, the food that Huge. creates. Yeah. And, and it, it slows down water currents. So all the, the stuff against, that's yeah. in the water just gets trapped and you get nice clear water. Well, so, and, it,
0: and it would help, to, uh, help with wave action, too, I would imagine.
1: Yeah, it, it keeps everything stabilized. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when we lost that, we lost all of those functions. Um, and one of the things that I was trying to figure out is, okay, can this species come back at all? Because once you lose the functions, water turbidity goes up, um, clarity goes down and uh amphibolists are kind of like mangroves they don't have seeds mm. they create live babies on the parent plant and then oh, wow. those break off and they have to hook onto something.
2: You call them propagules like a mangrove
1: um you could call them propagules i don't know what the technical term would be for them it might actually be propagules mm, look, look, ju- look I, that
2: one up guys yeah i just say <laughs> that they
1: give live birth which makes people <laughs> raise their eyebrows but it's true <laughs> yeah It is true. Um, But yeah, so what we found is all the uh, tiny tropical species that can't match those functions, but they're disturbance tolerant, Mm -hmm. they came in because they do have seed banks. All of that canopy was gone. All of a sudden you have like an open meadow and they were able to start germinating. So we've got a change in the community now. The question is, can the animals tolerate that or Mm -hmm. are they going to start starving and leaving?
2: And so the next sort of chapter of this story is about how the animals are doing with this change. And I know you've got another paper coming up. Can you give us a hint at what you're going to talk about in that?
1: Yeah. So one of the jobs for my dissertation was figuring out, okay, what happened to the seagrass? Is it likely to come back? But also what happened to the animals? Yeah. Uh, One of the reasons why Shark Bay is a World Heritage Area is because of its biodiversity and its marine life. For example, it has the world's largest population of dugongs. Um, So we had been collecting data on uh, dugongs and turtles and seabirds and sea snakes and tiger sharks for almost 20 years as part of an ecosystem project on the ecology of fear and how tiger sharks alter the behavior of all those other animals Mm. and what that means for the ecosystem. Mm. But what it meant here is we had thousands and thousands of sightings of all these species. And if we just kept collecting the data, we could see how those numbers had changed. Essentially, what we found is... For most species, you lose the resources, you you lose a lot of the animals, but the exact nature of how they get lost, so whether they starve or whether they leave, and to what degree you lose those animals, differs by species. So animals like dugongs, which are, they have to eat seagrass, Yeah, that's their diet. That's yeah. their diet. Uh, or sea snakes, which use it not only for a foraging ground, but also for refuge, are yeah. really hard hit. So yeah. our dugongs, we lost two-thirds of them we lost three quarters of the sea snakes. Wow. Wow. Um, But then other species like loggerhead turtles who uh, will eat bivalves in sandy habitats, they actually, they're doing great because- they can see them. All (laughs) their food is just out in the open. Yeah. Uh,
2: The question is for how long, you know? Exactly,
1: (laughs) yeah. yeah. So, you know, is that gonna continue 10 years from now?
0: Well, nature finds a balance every time.
1: Well, yeah, you have these population um, trajectories which sometimes take a while to uh, kind of correct themselves. The challenge here is if we lose these uh, these beds permanently or semi-permanently, um, and then we have these animal populations crash. Uh, where do they go if they can go anywhere? And what does that mean for Shark Bay's World Heritage Area?
2: Yeah, yeah. It's, you got you've got stuff coming back, but it may not be the same species of seagrass. May not be the same provide the same things to those animals. So. Will it ever be exactly the same? You know, that's that's tough.
1: And you can get some strange things happen too where you'll have uh, a disturbance come through and change the plants at the base of the food chain, but the animals that come through at the same time keep it in that new state. So this happened a little uh, south of Shark Bay. (laughs) Um, We had uh, a lot of the kelps died from that warm water but tropical fish were pushed in by the warm water, too. Yeah. And when you lost that and went to, like, a turf algae community, those fish actually helped keep it that way. Yeah. So mm. you have a permanent shift now.
2: Wow. So um, I, we should say that you're not uh, only studying uh, exotic australian uh, unesco world heritage sites you're doing uh research applied right here in florida too yeah um that you know includes some climate components too we were i was going to ask you about this uh study on sea urchins and their ability to control macroalgae and whether that would be affected
0: well because yeah they're they're very important for the reefs the uh the urchins because they eat the algae off and keep the coral clean correct
1: absolutely yeah
2: oh yeah and so you were looking, I recall, at whether um, one of the parts of climate change called ocean acidification, whether that would affect that process. So how's that going?
1: Yeah, so we've got uh, the preparations are being laid now to do some experiments uh, in collaboration with Dr. Heather Page, who's another postdoctoral research fellow uh, down in the Keys. And we, of course, have a, uh, a really sophisticated ocean acidification experimental system in the Keys that we can use to answer these questions. We can manipulate temperature and uh, pH to try and figure out what is gonna happen to these species interactions in the oceans of, say, 2100. Um, The reason we care about those urchin-algae interactions is exactly why Joe said uh, urchins are really important for keeping the reefs clean, and uh, the algae can overgrow corals and kill adult corals and, and keep baby corals from being able to settle. So we need to know if urchins are gonna remain effective 100 years from now or if, for example, algae are gonna be able to overgrow them or urchins are not even gonna be able to find the algae. So Heather and I have a set of experiments that we've put together trying to ask these questions. Uh, So first of all, we wanna know, does the amount that urchins eat change? under ocean acidification Hmm. they they have hard parts um Mm. just like corals do and in a more acidic environment that's going to stress them out so maybe they eat more
0: would it make them more brittle or
1: well it certainly could yeah if if they're not able to create their tests uh as dense as they normally do then they could be more susceptible to predation or damage um And sometimes you have animals, once they get stressed, they eat more. Sometimes they eat less.
2: Not for the same reasons I eat more when I'm stressed, right? (laughs) I I eat, if I don't
1: have a deadline and I'm stressed, I eat a lot. If I have a deadline and I'm stressed, I don't eat at all. So, like, you know, again, going back to the human parallels, there's there's some patterns we could probably pick up.
2: Maybe. So, all right. And so that one's kind of in progress, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So we did some... uh, some preliminary work in the, in the fall, mm-hmm. and uh, we are setting up right now to do experiments, and uh, I think next week we're going to start collecting data. Um, oh, cool. so not only how much they eat, but also do urchins have a preference between acidified mm-hmm. and normal algae? Can they even find algae under acidified conditions? So
0: I didn't even think about that. How is algae affected by ocean acidification?
1: Well, generally it's pretty it's really happy because uh, ocean acidification happens when you put more CO2 in the water and plants are... CO2-eating machines. Mm-hmm. So if you have enough nutrients, so the nutrients aren't limiting, increasing ocean acidification is going to uh, actually increase their production. So if the urchins can't keep up, you've got a problem.
0: Yeah. It's going to have an ocean full of algae.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, people wonder if the seaweed coral soup. reefs will... Yeah, seaweed soup. Well, like the coral reefs could change to more algae or spongy-dominated things. That's one of the things that's been been ongoing in our research. Um, so we got one more study I wanted to bring up. Uh, it's the reason that you're here to give a talk at Moat. Uh, so nurse sharks and lobster traps.
0: I know. I want to hear this one. What's the,
2: what's the, can you, you like your lobster?
0: I like, I like lobster. Okay. I like nurse sharks too.
1: Well, you I'm not going to tell you where we're keeping all the lobster then David.
0: Okay, down. <laughs> <yeah. laughs> Don't tell <laughs> me. <laughs> this will go missing.
1: More than once I've woken up in the middle of the night, just worried that I'm going to get to work and all the lobster is just going to be gone. All the lobster gone. Gone. Um, But yeah, so we have an applied project that uh, has wrapped up. We're doing some follow-up work on it now. Um, But essentially, uh, Moat partnered with the uh, Dutch Elasmanbrink Society for the uh, Dutch Caribbean to try and solve a bycatch problem that the Dutch fishermen were having down on the island of Ceiba. And essentially, uh, the problem they have is they, they have a lobster fishery, just like we have here in Florida, the traps they use are a bit different. They're made of wire. They're a lot bigger than the wooden traps we use here. Um, and that's because their lobsters are quite large. But the problem with using those traps is they're also catching nurse sharks. Mm. And this is not uncommon. Uh, every fishery basically in the world has bycatch, which is what you catch when you that you don't wanna catch. Mm. Um, but the thing is those nurse sharks can not only eat lobster, but they can damage traps. And they increase the handling time that the fishermen need to take in order to do their job.
2: And they're getting stuck in there? Yeah,
1: they're getting stuck. So they're getting pulled up with the traps. Sometimes they can even start ripping the traps apart. Mm -hmm. Wow. And nurse sharks are natural predators of lobster. Yeah. So the fishermen are like, this is not good. We've got to try and figure a solution to this. And they approached Moat and asked if we would be willing to try and figure out some solutions to keep the nurse sharks from getting in. Mm -hmm. So we did that work uh, this past fall. And essentially what we found is we don't have a good way to keep them out. Uh, But by video recording what they do when they get in the traps, we found out that a lot of the times they're not doing what we thought they were doing in the traps. When they do go in, Mm -hmm. most of the time they immediately want to get out. Really? Yeah. So we would put the traps in uh, a tank and we'd video record what would happen. And the tank would have bait in it. It would have a lobster in it, just like the fishermen would put in and then we would put a nurse shark in the tank, but outside the trap, mm. and we would watch to see what would happen. Well, it turns out that we were expecting the nurse sharks to immediately go in the trap and start eating our lobster. Yeah. And our, our main concern when we started is, we're gonna run out of lobster here. Um, what happened was- well, If you invited me down,
0: you would. Well,
1: yeah, <laughs> so sometimes we gotta do this work in the Keys you yeah. know, for our own <laughs> <laughs> safety. Yeah. Um, what we found would happen is the, the sharks go into the traps occasionally, but they're not terribly motivated to do so. And when they go in, they don't really care about the lobsters at all, even Mm. overnight. Um, they, they want to get out. So what we think is happening is these traps in, in the fishery, they're down for a week or a week and a half. So we think what happens is the nurse sharks get in kind of, they're curious, um, maybe on day two or three and you know, they try and get out, they can't get out. And by day seven or eight, their roommates start to look pretty tasty. (laughs) Yes. So we decided instead of trying to keep them out, let's try and find a way to facilitate them Getting to out. escape. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, So we essentially put a door in the top of the traps. Uh, the nurse sharks can hit it with their snout. Um, once they see it's there, they'll kind of keep coming back to it until they figure out how it works. And they can push themselves out. And within 90 minutes, about 50% of them can get out. Wow.
0: But... Does this maybe mean like the smarter ones will think, Hmm, I can get in, grab a quick bite and then get out Mm -hmm. Yeah, like McDonald's.
1: (laughs) Yeah. It's like a (laughs) drive-through. Um, Mm -hmm. that is an an unanswered question. So I can definitely tell you that the sharks learn, um, which we've known at Moat for decades because of Dr. Jeannie Clark's work, um, but. We would find uh, our nurse sharks, you know, the first time that we'd put them in the trap, maybe after 45 minutes, they'd figure out how the door worked. Uh, We had some animals that by their 10th or 12th deployment, they were getting out in 30 seconds. Really? Mm -hmm. They knew exactly where the door was. Mm -hmm. Um, So for animals that might want to go into the trap, eat a lobster and get out, that's something that might happen. I'm not convinced it would be that common in the fishery, but we're going to be able to answer that question because the next step is to actually bring these uh, long-term um, marine cameras with us down to Saba in May, mm-hmm. and we're going to be deploying them in the traps for 11 days straight. So we'll actually see, see the real dynamics that happen yeah. underwater, yeah. and we'll see if we get these repeat visitors or not.
0: Well, the instinct to, to escape a trap situation might override everything anyway, and
1: they'll just like, no, I'm just getting out. Yeah. I can tell you that we really can't effectively keep the sharks out if they're motivated to get in. Mm-hmm. Um, when we were first working on this, we were expecting them to get in like a hundred percent of the time. They were getting in maybe 10% of the time. Um, and we thought, well, it's either cause they're not motivated or cause the traps are too sophisticated for them to figure it out. Mm-hmm. So we threw in some of their actual food that we feed them when they're not in the experiment and they were in the trap within 20 seconds. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah.
2: uh-huh. So it's a
1: motivation question for okay. them.
2: Yeah. And at the beginning, you were talking about differences in traps and locations, but it sounds like it's not really a viable solution for them to use the kind of wooden traps that are used in maybe other places because of the size of their lobster. So they can't just turn and try something else so much.
1: Yeah, that was our kind of first thought is, you know, I mm-hmm. spoke with some lobster fishermen around the Keys and I was like, you know, let's talk about, you know, what are your suggestions? And they're like, well, well you just, you have to adopt these wooden traps because... You know, we don't have a bycatch problem, really, uh, in our fishery. And, you know, they would look at a picture of those traps and they're like, oh, yeah, no, no wonder you're catching <laughs> sharks. But then you look at the picture of how large the, the lobsters are that you're catching on the Sapa Bank. And yeah. they, they wouldn't fit in the traps no. themselves either. Yeah, no, they wouldn't even get in the hole. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. So
2: we can't wait to find out what happens in May when you start deploying. Me
1: either. I'm really yeah. excited about it.
2: That's awesome. Um, so... Now comes the part where we ask if you have any funny or really interesting stories from the field. So many. <laughs> so many. <laughs> so many. How can you pick just one? Uh,
1: the <laughs> my goodness.
2: Um,
1: okay. So, uh, one time, uh, we were out, uh, in Shark Bay and the, the little place that we were at, the little campground I was talking about, mm-hmm. um, is the only real human settlement on that gulf of the bay. So the bay has a peninsula in the center and it's got an eastern and western gulf. Um, And so we'd work in that eastern gulf and we were uh, tracking uh, turtle cameras. Mm. So we would put Uh, cameras on turtles. I do a lot of camera stuff for my work. This was helping out a colleague. Um, And we'd put these cameras on turtles and uh, let them go for a couple days. And the cameras would record what the turtles were eating, where they were living, what they were doing while they were there. Um, But those are expensive packages and we would need to get them back. Mm -hmm. So the tags would pop off and start transmitting a radio signal. And then we'd go with an antenna and go find them and pick them up. Yeah. but where they went was completely dependent on where the turtle went. Mm, absolutely. So one day we were tracking down a tag, and it had gone pretty far south behind a series of cliffs. Mm. And this cut us off completely from uh, the, the little settlement. And so we saw the tag. It was on the beach. And uh, we started driving up towards the beach in our little boat. And I did something Really stupid, I drove through a patch of algae that was floating on the surface because it was the only way to get to the beach. And uh, I plugged the engine to ah. all the water intake. Mm. Yeah. And uh, the water uh, impeller, the internal propeller that keeps the water running through the engine, uh, tore itself apart. Oh, nice. Uh. Yeah. So that was a fun lesson. I would have preferred to learn that, yeah. you know, in a harbor else. or yeah, somewhere.
0: somewhere. where I could easily take the motor apart and put a new impeller Yeah, in.
1: or even just wave to another human and say, yes. come help yeah, me. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, my
2: goodness. (laughs) Yeah, so
1: that was a stupid thing to do. Um, And so we beached the boat. We couldn't really run the engine anymore. Um, And we had phones, uh, but we didn't have shoes. (laughs) So we didn't really wear shoes a lot out there. And so we were on the beach and looking up at this big red sandstone cliff covered in briars and and, uh, venomous things. Oh. And so we climbed up the cliff. You're gonna die.
0: Yeah, it
1: was. <laughs> it was one of those Sorry. bonehead fieldwork <laughs> moments where you learn your lesson real quick and realize you're never gonna make a stupid mistake like that yeah. until the next time you make it. Until <laughs> yeah.
2: Till the next one. Well, spoilers. He's alive. He's, I made. I he's made here. it. Yeah. 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 Season two. Yeah.
1: Um. But yeah. So, uh, we climbed up the cliff and um, managed to get cell phone reception enough to. Uh, to call back to camp to get another team of researchers to help us, but they didn't answer their phone. So <laughs> we climbed all the way up the cliff for nothing and um, ended up having to climb back down and think about how we were, how the heck we were going to get out of this. And um, we were lucky we had a a second bilge pump on the boat that we had been, we'd kind of jury rigged to the battery so we could flush water over some samples we collected. And so we duct taped that bilge pump to a garden hose wow. and then plugged that in the top side of the engine and flushed it from the back. So um, we ended up having one of our interns essentially with their arm over the side of the boat with a bilge pump, pumping water into the boat to try and cool Cool the engine engine enough so we could turn it on and limp back to shore. And we eventually did get back, um, but it was just one of those situations that exemplified how alone you are out there.
0: Yes, [SSSSSSS2] always leave a float plan.
1: Oh, we i was uh i was pretty religious about that in fact my team <laughs> would make fun of me um that i i kept float plans very rigidly but that's exactly why yeah. we did it <laughs> yeah
2: wow
0: hey weren't they supposed to be back like uh, a couple of days ago
1: <laughs> i'm sure they're fine <laughs> yeah slowly, they're fine
2: slowly turning into a jules verne novel yeah and, oh my god that's uh, that's awesome that you uh, survived and got to Climb a cliff, uh, not wanting to, <laughs> and darn your colleagues for not answering their phones. How dare they! <laughs> yeah, I mean
1: they—they they really were should have just been at our beck and call.
2: yeah exactly. Whatever we needed. Yeah. We <laughs> so, uh, before um, we wrap up, I wanted to give you the chance to, if there is any topic in ecology that you wish the general public understood better, any principles or calls to action or anything, you know.
1: Yeah, Uh, I think the central thing that I would uh, have people take away is um, our ecosystems are really complex and they can be really hard to understand, but that doesn't mean that you have to have some advanced degree or a lot of background to be able to make a difference in your local ecosystems, uh, whether that is doing replantings, removing invasive species, doing garbage cleanups, uh, or trying to, especially if you're, uh, your property's near the water, trying to reduce the amount of nutrients that flow off your property. You know, there's a lot of very simple things that you can do to make your ecosystems more resilient. Um, and you don't have, it's not rocket science, uh, to do a lot of these things. So don't let that, uh, paralyze you and keep you from trying to make a difference because these individual level effects do matter.
0: And and this is people all over the country, in the middle of the country, along the coast, anywhere, because all of that stuff you, you do, um, affects the, the greater environment.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know the the Ohio and Mississippi rivers drain something like a third of the continent, and that all goes into the ocean.
0: Mm-hmm. And that yeah. all comes from your lawns up there.
2: Yeah, you're in a watershed, no matter where you are. Mm-hmm. If you're here in Florida, you can look up um, the organizations who have calls to action. If you're here where we are, you know, keep Sarasota County beautiful. Sometimes does cleanups, or Moat does them, or
0: Sarasota Bay National Estuary Program.
2: Oh yeah absolutely and they have some nutrient um suggestions on their website which i found super helpful so you can find stuff like that wherever you are um and i think that's it man what are we what am i missing
0: i don't know i'm looking forward to the to his talk tonight oh
2: yeah yeah i get get
0: to
1: see lobster get to see the (laughs)
2: lobster i'm excited
1: about it too
2: Well, thank you so much for coming and for swimming all this way.
1: Thanks for having me. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to go take a shower now.
2: (laughs) 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 Okay. Well, we'll see you all in two weeks for another episode of 2C Fans at Mo.